Welcome back to Libya Matters. I'm Alham Saudi. My co-host Marwa Mohammed is away, for good reason, advocating for migrants' rights. If you want to know more, check out the link in the episode description. It is so good to be back following on from our very special season that celebrated and honoured 10 years of civil society in Libya, and where we dug deep into Salwa Bougaghis' life and death and reflected on what that tells us about the state of civil society today. If you haven't listened yet, I really hope that you will. You can find the season in episodes 24 to 28. And if you have listened, I hope you connected with it and were left as inspired as we are by Libyan civil society. In this episode, which is also a special one, I'm delighted to share with you a recording of the first ever Libya Matters Live event that took place in December 2020. Circumstances meant that it was a virtual event, but that didn't stop what was an engaging and lively conversation. Our wonderful guests were Ahmed Qtunish, co-founder of the Kawakbi Foundation, Ragda Ibrahim, host of Hadan Masa for Wasat TV, Asma Khalifa, co-founder of Tamazirat Women's Movement, and Patrick Wintour, diplomatic editor at The Guardian. We discussed the challenges and opportunities of covering the Libyan story and what it means for accountability. As you'll hear shortly, we look at how Libya is covered in the media in a wide sense. As we are now in the throes of the elections, the conversation is brought into a sharper focus and serves as a reminder of how important the media is in ensuring free and fair elections particularly given the limited capacity of Libyan society as a result of the current crackdown on their activities and ability to function. So, with that in mind, enjoy the episode. Libya Matters started uh, about two years ago now with the idea that we understood that the Libyan story was a difficult one to tell. And what we saw was that the price that might be paid is that it becomes one that we don't tell well. And so Libya Matters was born out of uh, a hope that we as LFGL, but more so our extensive network of incredible experts and um, people who had lived experience of the situation in Libya would help us to tell that story with more nuance, with more depth and with more humanity and to bring light onto issues that we are passionate about at Lawyers for Justice in Libya, namely human rights and the rule of law um, and with an increasing focus on accountability in recent years for, for obvious reasons. This event in Libya Matters Live came out of a, a, a conversation and a, a, a two-year project that we have been running with international media support, IMS, to look at the telling of the Libyan story in the media and the possible impact that has had on the story. And I think there the idea comes that the media helps to create the perception of a conflict. And when that perception takes hold and is not interrogated, it feeds into the reality and at time has the potential to become the reality of a conflict. Additionally, with much of local media funded by Libyan and foreign stakeholders in the conflict, the role of independent media has become even more important. And just to think about what does that mean and what pressure is then put or what burden is then put on them to adjust the story of the Libyan conflict and bring the the nuance and bring the truth um, in many instances to it. And with a specific focus on international media and the role that they might have in um, telling the Libyan story, therefore potentially informing the international actors of the Libyan story who then become quite often decision makers in the Libyan story and that kind of circle and what that could lead to if the stories that come out are not nuanced. To try and tackle some of these things, we, we did a, a research and we are putting together um, our thoughts on that. And this, this event is part of that conversation that we will feed into our findings. Um, the structure today, uh, we're hoping to make it a little bit more like Libya Matters and a little and a lot less like normal panels where we have, you know, interventions of six to seven minutes and a moderator who asks a lot of questions and it becomes quite repetitive sometimes. But what we really would like to do here is to keep it short, snappy and, in, and engaging and very interactive. And so with that in mind, I've asked our panelists to not make interventions, but to make provocations. And in that, in that vein, we want really for them to be bringing to the table the things that they personally are struggling with or are trying to understand in this conversation or that have piqued their interest. And with that, I think we are ready to start. I'm going to introduce my uh, wonderful panel. Two of them are former Libya Matters guests and great friends of Lawyers for Justice in Libya. And two are also, we'd like to think, friends of Lawyers for Justice in Libya, um, but are in here in their capacity as journalists. So first I'll introduce Ragda Ibrahim, who is um, a Libyan journalist. She is the host of one of Libya's most prominent evening programs, Had al Masa, uh, which attempts to take uh, more kind of in-depth looks at stories with more time to reflect on them and, and, and in-depth discussions. On the international front, we have Patrick Wintour, 
uh, diplomatic editor at The Guardian, who has done a great job of, of covering the Libyan story over the last several years and has become a friendly, familiar face at Libya events. The next panelist I'd like to introduce you is Esma Khalifa, who is a phenomenal activist and, and feminist working on Libyan issues, um, looking at the questions of intersectionality with minority rights and is just one of the most inspiring uh, people I know. Sorry about the uh, bias there. Um, and then we have Ahmed Iktanish, who is also one of the guests we had on season two and um, is such a, a lucid and nuanced thinking, thinker on the questions of media in the situation of Libya and especially with a focus on social media. And I always leave conversations with him uncomfortable with the level of knowledge I have. Uh, and I hope you will all feel that at the end of this session. So I will stop talking and in the spirit of making this short and snappy, um, I will try to control my own interventions. Um, and I'll hand over first to Rahda to give us her provocation. Welcome to Libya Matters Live, Rahda. Hello. Well, thank you so much for this whole introduction. And I want to say hello to all of the panelists right here and the audience as well. First, maybe my, uh, my intervention is going to be on international media and the national media as well. As we can see, and as we saw after the revolution or before, during the revolution, it started to, to impact a great deal in Libya, in the Libyan story, um, on showing the, the Libyan story, the Libyan conflict. It became a trusted source uh, for Libyan news, the international media, of course. After the revolution, there, were the, the, there was the rise of the national media outlet. What happened next, and maybe because I work in, a, in, in the national sector, in Libya and private sector as well, I can talk about the, I can say about this, that the private sector is being controlled by the funding and especially the funding. But when we see the, the local channel in Libya, they're controlled by armed, armed factors in Libya. So there's like this problem towards the national media outlets in Libya. Maybe this is why it's not that trusted in, in Libya. And this is situation on the international media outlet, as you can see. But it helped a lot with bringing and shining a light on the right, uh, on the human rights violation. Libya, the, the violation that, that, that uh, puts everyone's life in Libya now in, in danger. Maybe it got declined a bit because of the dangerous and the armed uh, conflict now in the Libya matter. Thank you so much. That was right on, uh, on the provocation and, and short and sweet. Thank you so much. Patrick, I'll come to you next and then I'll, I'll save my questions so everyone has spoken. Um, look, I, I just sort of start by, um, there was a quote that I, was, I came across from John le Carré, who, um, the spy master novelist who just died. And it seemed to be kind of opposite to what I was about to say, which he said, um, a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. And I guess we've all lived in some form of uh, danger in the last year and since we've all been tied to our desks and it's been very, very difficult for a lot of journalism that would normally go on to occur just simply because we've been in some cases housebound or anyway, nation bound. And that's obviously even more the case in Libya, which is very difficult to cover from abroad anyway. And I, there's really, as far as I can see, there's kind of three forms of sort of journalism that I see in Libya. My own interest in Libya just stemmed out of, I sort of feel like there's a great deal written in the UK about the fallout from the Iraq uh, war, but the British intervention in Libya was not equally, but anyway, had the same kind of deleterious impact. And somehow I feel like the British press sort of gloss over it. Um, but it seems to me there's only sort of three kinds of journalism that occur, one of which is the kind of war reporting, which is very brave and humane and often a very vivid read, um, but it doesn't necessarily add to your understanding. And then the second kind of journalism is really related to the migration issue, which is either about the detention of journalists or the detention of, um, of migrants and uh, the way in which people die on the way to the across the Mediterranean and then the political impact, say, in Italy. And then the, the third kind of journalism, which I'm slightly involved in, which is the, the diplomacy. And what I'd say about that is it's, it's near unreportable. Uh, and that's sort of my provocation. And I don't know how to make it easier. The complexity of the story is such that 
to try to galvanize and interest your news desk in why they should have another very dense piece about the kind of diplomatic to and fro in Libya, the complexities of what's going on between the East and West, the differences within each factions, the roles of the militia, what's happening in the banks, what's happening um, politically, what's happening militarily, and then all the external act within sort of five minutes of trying to explain a story to a news desk that you can see their eyes glazing over. So my only provocation would be to say, how on earth do we make this story more reportable than it is at present? Nearly unreportable might well be a good a good title for the report if we ever publish one on this. But it's yeah, it is um it's a really it's a really interesting way to look at it. Thank you so much for that. Um I'll come to you, Asma, next for your provocation. Thank you. Yeah, similarly, I think to uh what Patrick has said, but more in a way that I think Libya as a failed intervention is not really been reporting on for political and, and often also politically, locally and uh, internationally that there is often I hear that there is no either there's no interest or the focus is on issues that are related to Europe. It has become a crisis alert whenever there is something that is really wrong or something that is really bad. Uh, Libya will come up, such as the, the issues of human trafficking, which is portrayed often as a Libya issue and not as a regional problem as well. And the reporting is very micro level. It does not speak to Libyans. There are not so many articles or news agencies that invite Libyans to write unless unless they have to conform to a certain story. The reports on women are hardly existing, not written by women, uh, use a passive voice, um, and they really, really remove uh, the agency of, of Libyans. And when addressing uh, issues of, of human rights violations, uh, there's either the very much demonizing, dehumanizing problem, or that uh, there is no reporting on, for instance, what Libyans do in order to improve the conditions. Thank you. No, thank you so much. Um, so much to think about there. But yeah, the question of de- dehumanization is, is obviously one of the main provocations for us starting Libya Matters. Ahmed, um, over to you. Hi. So I don't work in the media per se, but what happens in the media and in, on social media often affects what I do. And therefore, I spend a lot of my time thinking about them. And over the last few months, my thoughts have been drifting more and more towards a set of questions around how media outlets and social media organizations can see themselves as actually being part of the system and stakeholders in what's happening with a duty um, rather than as neutral or uninvolved disinterested observers flies on the wall who can see what happens without affecting it. There's an idea in quantum physics called the observer effect in which it's impossible to measure anything or even observe it without in some way affecting its properties. Um, That can be as simple as by putting a thermometer in a glass of water, you're um, changing its temperature whilst trying to measure the temperature. But on the level of atoms, that's much greater. And I think in the 21st century, that's how the media is working. It's impossible to report on something without your reporting or just the fact that you're paying attention, um, having some kind of effect on the actions of those you're reporting on or their motivations or the way they perceive themselves or the way um, others who can influence the situation perceive it. This is tricky because I'm literally asking the media to adopt quantum science, but I don't think there's any way around it. I think we need to have uh, a new understanding of the media's involvement and responsibilities in events in the world today. That is, um, yeah, that's really fascinating and kind of brings me full circle into this, how I want to kick off the conversation, which is to say, actually, maybe I'll rephrase my question, my initial question, because of what you've just said, Ahmed, in the sense that has the definition or has the role of media changed? Are we still defining the role of the kind of fourth uh, element of of a state, et cetera, that it's independent observer, that it brings us the true story. Is that a misunderstanding of the media today? Do we need to redefine the media instead of holding it to account to that standard? Does that make sense as a question? Are we using the wrong standard towards the media um, instead of actually acknowledging that they have this new 
uh, role and that they are a stakeholder and no longer an independent observer. Um, and maybe I will bring that to you first, Patrick, and then we can see if anyone else wants to contribute. But in my mind, maybe it is that we're misdefining the role of the media and therefore the kind of level of oversight or independence that we ask of them is no longer part of what that can what can be offered. Well, it's, it's quite a long, long debate in the media about objectivity and Mm. Um, and there's been these debates, say, around the, the, the BBC in the UK about truly objective uh, and whether, in fact, it's not better to have sort of advocacy journalism from either side and then the, the listener or viewer can make their own mind up uh, and that, um, you know, there is no kind of objectivity uh, or the danger is that you just give one one side's view, then the other side's view, and no analysis whatsoever, and you don't really help with the understanding of the viewer who does need to be guided through the complexities by some form of expert. My view is actually there is still a possibility of trying to find a sort of broad broad thing called objectivity, uh, or anyway, uh, an attempt to be impartial. Um, and I think it'd be really disappointing if, as it seems to me, from a distance, the Libyan media is already incredibly sort of in camps and you have to sort of know who's funding which uh, media outlet before you and then you have to aim off as a result of knowing that. Mm. And unless you know who's funding what, you don't really know what you're reading and you can't actually get a clear read on what you're been put in front of you. So I, I would say stick with the, the goal, although it would be flawed, of, of trying to be objective. And Rhoda, if I say to you, like in the context of a, of a conflict, even if you're trying to be objective and telling the story yeah. uh, with some distance, inevitably the story tends to, for, to focus in, in most journalism on the conflict, on the conflict stakeholders, uh, on the perpetrators of violations from our perspective as human rights um, activists. And in our mind, actually, the more we cover them and their actions versus the impact of their actions, the more we give them airtime, the more they become stakeholders, the more crucial they become to Libya's future, because now they have to be part of the peace as well as having been part of the conflict. And therefore, inevitably or purposefully, the spotlight that's put on them through the media legitimizes them as stakeholders. And is that something we think you think about as a journalist that obviously covers the story so in depth, day in, day out, that actually by us continuing to reference these people, we're giving them the platform, we're giving them legitimacy directly or indirectly, and therefore making them continue part continues to be part of the story, if that makes sense. Yeah, it is. It is very true. And it's not just a risk. It actually happens in Libya right now. All all media outlets are covering the story of these militias, for example, or the the armed people or some political party with armed. Mm. You know how the situation in, in Libya goes. And I think even when we got when we get asked by international um, uh, journalists media outlet or something about the situation in Libya, um, we will tell like our our point of view or our media point point of view and another person will tell another story. So this is how it's really complex, the situation in, in Libya and how everyone is seeing it from their their perspective, from the company or the, the media outlet perspective, for example. You have that. You have that that we tell most of the channels or the media outlet tell the story of the, the armed people, of what happened on this city or with these two tribes that uh, got into this whole war because of something. But they don't tell the story of the people that happened to them, that, for example, the Urga people or the uh, the displaced people in Tripoli right now or, or or more more than that. We have a lot of whole stories in Libya. And also we have the danger part of it because when you cover, sometimes when you cover, for example, you cover um, displaced people in, in an area in Tripoli, maybe something would happen to these people that you covered the story for them, uh, women or children or something like that. And it's it's difficult to go and get these kind of stories. We try to account on our reporters uh, in the place, but sometimes it's even, it's more dangerous for them because they are in the country. They are in, this, in, in Tripoli or, or in another city that, that is controlled by a certain type or name of militia in Libya. So it's it's really hard to, to try to tell a story from I I can see it from a security kind of way uh, the security for the reporter itself and because it's 
it's it's really complex as we can see islamist group there's like the the, the whole militia's story and the uh, people with different point of view but it's it's a matter of of security for journalists right now it's one of the reason that they can't tell the story right or correct and i and i guess from the perspective of activists the stories we care about are the stories of the victims and not the perpetrators. So I think that's some of the frustration that, that we feel. It is true. It is true. Even for the people, it is very true. Yeah. For us, we want to tell the story. But most of the times, not sometimes, most of the times you can't. And even when you ask like, uh, like international media outlets, why are they um, covering less news on Libya? They are talking as well about the dangerous situation in Libya right now. It's not just a local kind of view or national kind of view. It's very international right now. And as the traditional media, the television, the press media retires because of security reasons, the vacuums that are created are often replaced by citizen journalism between quotes or other forms of journalism on social media. So, Ahmed, maybe you can come in and explore with me a little bit this idea that, you know, we there's a deficit that's being created by the inability of journalism to do its to do its job or it's this obstacles it faces to do it fully um, and in a kind of more whole, like a, a more holistic way. Um, and so these gaps emerge and they're filled in by social media, positive and negative. And does the prevalence, I guess my question is, does the, pres- the prevalence of social media in the Libyan scene and here, especially we think of Facebook and the speed with which that, you know, that kind of deficit of traditional media is filled by social media and the quantity and the just, just sheer amount of information, it puts pressure on traditional media to also be speedy and then loses its nuance. And is that the kind of price that we're paying in the long term for the prevalence of social media? Yeah, I wonder if there's a diff, uh, an issue with the mission of conventional media coverage and what the objective of reporting on uh, events in places like Libya is, because I've had this debate with friends many times before, and um, I, I don't see any way around the problem that violence is always going to be prioritized. You know, if it bleeds, it leads, and armed conflicts uh, are going to take priority. But at the same time, that creates an imbalance when it's a long-term issue. Uh, between what other stories are being reported and the involvement of civil society or women or other groups? And is the objective of media's reporting on these things a kind of warning service of where the most dangerous parts in the world are? Or is it part of a mission to Mm. actually understand the country itself in the long run, uh, conflict notwithstanding? And there's also this erosion of boundaries over the last couple of decades, where in the past you were either a media organization or you're not a media organization. And a media organization is a very specific thing with very specific ways of working and duties and modes of thinking. Whereas now there's like this porous boundary between classical objective media organizations and partisan publishing groups and citizen collectives or activist groups who produce media in order to further their objectives rather than as part of a purely neutral commitment to reporting what happens. And on the far extreme, online phenomena of different levels of shadiness. Yeah, let's let's pause that shadiness. I'm sure that question will come up in a moment. But one thing that comes has come across through all the interventions and questions so far is this idea of an imbalance of whose story gets told. And so Esma, I'd like to bring you in here to kind of explore or at least shed lights on some of the untold stories that we see in Libya and, and the the fun, sort of the fundamental dangers um, there, but also kind of in general the gendered element of of this conversation. Because by nature, conflict generally is problematic when you come to talk about women because it's a very gendered topic anyway. Then the coverage of of gendered uh, the conflict, sorry, the coverage of conflict also becomes gendered, and then and then and the nature is always to focus on on the men because it tends to be the men who are in the limelight in conflict. And what does then happen to the story of of women? Um, well, we 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 would they we were relegated into the roles of um, either as activists, and then, then there are cover stories. Unfortunately, more uh, stories would come up if the activist was killed. And even then, there would be some sort of very passive headline 
that's, that speaks very little about the courage, these, the courageousness and the extraordinary lives of these activists. But I'll bring also another example. So in the war on Tripoli, there was quite a bit of coverage on, on the neighborhoods in Tripoli and how they're bombarded and the hospitals, fairly so. But then when the war was over and the people were basically source funding and grant funding for their rebuilding and their restructure and how they very soon went back home to build, there was nothing. There's nothing about Libyan resilience, you know, there's nothing about, and it's not about be, having good stories, feel good stories or uplifting stories, but it's also how this conflict is being portrayed, right? We are very much invisible unless we are doing something really bad. And that is, but that puts also like Libyans in such, in only such a light. And, and it's incredibly negative. Mm. No, I think that the idea of sort of, t- it, it always feels like you're just telling part of the story, right? And I think that's the kind of, the feeling I always get with Libya, whether it's the media, whether it's kind of expert analysis and the experts coming out, whether it's the politicians and the international scene, everyone runs in for the fire and then kind of comes back um, and, no, and doesn't tell the, doesn't complete the story. And so it always feels like every story on Libya is a cliffhanger. And you're like, okay, but then what happened? And I know the whole situation is one big cliffhanger. I'm not sort of suggesting that anything has been resolved, but it is it is that element. And, and actually what I've seen recently is how, maybe I'm naive in thinking that it is an interesting story, but the, the sort of the peace process that's happening in Libya doesn't get any coverage because that's about trying to build peace. Um, what we get coverage is when, things come to stop that process, right? So all the peace process in Libya has been disrupted because fighting has been renewed or the peace process in Libya has been disrupted because there is intervention from Turkey or Egypt is not happy or whatever, but we don't actually talk about the actual process of trying to build the peace. And so then when the story that disrupts the peace breaks, you're trying to brief a journalist in five minutes about the whole process so that they can have the introduction paragraph in place so that they can then quickly get to the kind of conflict, sorry for my language, but the conflict porn of the story, right? Because that's what what gets us all kind of moving. And I think that that cycle perpetuates itself because also it means that for those of us who are trying to talk about the accountability side of that story or trying to talk about the wrapping, you know, completion of a, of a narrative, we don't get to talk about that because all we're talking about is the initiation. And if you're, if I'm being particularly critical, I'm like, well, that all feeds into this culture of impunity because, okay, we know that we don't have judicial roots in Libya for accountability. We understand that. We understand that very well. We work on trying to, you know, get judicial accountability in other forums, internationally, etc. But my very kind of romanticized version of the media is that the media is also there for accountability. And what we see is you get reports of the conflict, but there isn't really the kind of the naming and shaming of perpetrators that you would hope that the media would be at liberty to do. There is less of that investigative journalism that might reveal information about the situation that activists can't reach on the ground. And I, and I think that's, for me, where there is much to be done instead of just reporting on today this happened, but to say, okay, well, there's, for example, you know, there's example of corruption that's, a, that's occurring in the political process. That's a juicy bit of, I think, potentially investigative journalism, but it's kind of left to the activists to do that work. And then when one of then when one of them gets hurt in the process, then we'll talk about it. But it's kind of it, it's that it's that sort of tokenistic is a bit harsh, but that kind of dip in, dip out. And maybe my question instead of my rant, I'll turn this into a proactive question, is to say, is that because practically speaking, Libya is not that big a story as a country. Therefore, the journalists who are covering Libya tend to cover it as one of many other stories. There isn't the dedication, dedicated journalism. There isn't the dedicated funding in journalism for the Libya story. And therefore, we should just accept that that's just the way it is. Um, Libya will always be part of the Middle East desk. And the, per- the person who's covering is also burdened with having to cover Egypt and Yemen and other really problematic, very newsworthy areas. Or do we say, well, actually, no, there is still a duty to cover this if you're proclaiming to be an international organization, media organization. Who wants to take that? I won't drop it on someone, but I will open it to whoever wants to come in on that. Well, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this this part um, because I think we see less of of international media in Libya right now because of situation. First, second of all, there's a lot of stories in Libya. Yeah, there is a lot of story, but I think because we didn't get to the other side of the bridge yet, 
we still have this all this initiative and it didn't get us anywhere right now we have the political dialogue of course and we hope it goes well but we we still in the state of nothing there's nothing right now in libya there's like we're gonna we're, we're just going to wait till this thing gets solved like in a political matter but also other other side of it because we didn't get to the political solution yet and we're still in this transitional phase in libya right now uh, we said that all the violence and the the armed factors right now in libya and all of that and the dangerous situation in libya but uh, <clears throat> as well we can we can say also about the the role of the media got shrunk a bit because there's no regulation also in the media outlets right now we have a lot of channels after the revolution we got like 20 or more channels in libya for once just we had a lot of channels at the same time but we still don't have till this second from 2011 after that we we used to have like three channels or something the local channels and then we had like 20 and 20 newspaper maybe more than that and i don't know how many radios that we had for example and social media outlet and all of that got shrunk to a couple of channels also there's no regulation there's no any code of conduct for example and 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 the libya and the libyan outlet uh, right now also there's no resource at the same time there's no data coming from libya and maybe this is because there is no like organization who are working on the ground right now in libya and they can cover everything with without any interference of anyone like countries or the militias or whatever we have those factors in libya right now so it's it's really attaches a lot of factors and it's like it it completes each other i think and and this is why it's 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 very hard to to cover the whole story maybe you can cover like part of it but you can't cover it all just about the um um the point about violence and covering that yeah. I mean, there was in in northern ireland in the um I suppose in the 70s and the 80s the, the, the there was a there was a point where there'd been so much coverage of bombs and the same kind of footage night after night. Uh, there was a quite a senior character at the BBC called John Burt, became Lord Burt, who sort of dubbed it as the bias against understanding. And that because all that was being covered was the surface and the violence and the rubble and yeah. not why the bomb had gone off or the causes of the conflict in Northern Ireland. He tried very deliberately at the BBC to try and make there be uh, news reports which took you further back than just the surface of the violence. And um, so obviously that is, it's a lot easier to have pictures of violence and bombs and mutilated limbs than it is to have people talking in a room discussing um, how they're going to get on with each other. So that that is just a kind of inherent problem in journalism. And I think the, the, the other point I would make is I, I just feel like there aren't enough new voices coming out of Libya. I noticed it was it, the, was it at the dialogue forum, there was a vote at one point where they said they didn't want any of the old figures that been around in Libyan politics to be elected for the interim government. I might have got the detail wrong. Yeah, but yes, yeah. yeah. And I, I thought yeah. it was really amazing and striking. But I then thought as a, you know, completely uh, amateur observer, I don't know who are these new people that there would be. And it seemed to be that then got squashed. And it, mm. it, maybe there's a duty of, of journalism within Libya to start to bring new new faces, new voices forward. So we don't have the same kind of uh, 20 sort of slightly geriatric males. Yeah. And one thing that it always sounds like we're asking for when we have these discussions that I feel it's important to, more, to note is we're all asking for more media. Nobody wants less of it. We um, really want mm. more investigations. We want more focus. We want more uh, nuance. And for something that everyone needs so much, there must be a way of uh, affording it. Um, we know that, you know, newspapers are understaffed and have uh, not very many people um, looking at such a large region of the world. But if there's so much demand, then um, there's got to be a way of uh, figuring it out. Um, and I th we just got an audience question that kind of picks up a little bit on some of these topics, because the question is, why does, um, it's from Ali Zurbi, and it says, you know, why does the media only tell us about the problems and doesn't work towards any of the solutions. Um, as Libyans, we, he says, as Libyan public, we know, we know the problems. 
but I guess that this points again to this question of maybe perhaps more investigative journalism or more kind of uh, advocacy journalism, as Patrick mentioned. And I, I don't, I don't know if any anyone wants to specifically comment on that question of the the advocacy element of journalism as opposed to the you know the reporting element of of journalism. Um, something uh, Patrick mentioned resonates with me, which is that there aren't very many new voices coming out, and I think naturally there would be because a lot of people gravitate to this and want to present problems. So. It indicates that there's something structurally wrong with the media ecosystem in Libya that's preventing people from coming in and being able to apply their creativity and their initiative and give their underused time. And how can all of us as uh, participants in the media or as activists or as you know, uh, international organizations play a role in facilitating those new voices to enter and be presenting solutions? And then, so we've got here another question, Rada, I don't know if you can see it, which is, um, it says, when Rada says that every reporter or journalist reports a story from a certain perspective related to corporate funding, are we saying that there is absolutely no freelance or independent journalism in Libya, apart from social media platforms which don't claim neutrality? Is this situation of explicitly ideological journalism a manifestation of Vogue acknowledgement that one can't be objective? or neutral, so why try? Or is it more a lack of understanding of any training of journalistic principles? That's a very weighted yeah. and very long question, so we can break it down into parts. Perhaps you can pick up on the question of Raghda, the about the you know the link between funding and neutrality. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then we can talk about the, the second part, maybe um, yeah. in, a, in a wider context. Uh, funding and neutrality are really related on this part. You can try, and of course, there's a lot of journalists who are trying to be neutral or trying, of course, and to be objective. And there's also people who work in these kind of channels that have these kind of that this kind of impact, uh, this kind of relationship between funding and the way they present or the way they they tell their their stories. But people in there, they are trying to to deliver a story with. A certain kind of objectivity, but right now the private sector are actually it's it's all funded. I can't say other than that. And there's some certain things that 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 people can talk about on these kind of channels. But still, till this now, Libyan journalism journalists are trying to to deliver stories, are trying to be objective in in a kind of way. There's also this lack of training, and I said it before. There's no regulation right now in the media. In the media sector in, in Libya and in general, uh, there is that as well. And we still, to this second, Libya journalism are still new. You can say that they're still new and fresh. There's this whole process and the political process as well as getting in the way. And there's this whole war as well as getting in the way and the countries interference as well because they are funded by countries or they're funded by, by people with great influence in the Libyan, uh, the, the Libyan political scene. So it's, it's really related all together. And, and there is, of course, there's independent journalism. There's uh, freelancers who are, do, who are doing a great job in this, in this uh, field. But most of them are, most of the channels are not. This period of time, this this phase of the Libyan history right now that we're talking about, the conflict part of it. And hopefully we can get to the other part of the conciliation and, and the stability in Libya someday. But if I probe you a little bit on that, because if we're saying this conflict is just too hard to cover, how are we then going to be able to cover its consequences properly? Because you still need to understand it, Right. Um, and I think I, I understand the question of, of funding. There's, yeah, yeah. So that, that, there, yeah. There's few people are trying to do that and they are doing a good job. Like we, we, we are dependent on those kind of people. We're dependent on those kind of reports that that coming from Libya. And there's like uh, uh, a whole lot of not a lot. Actually, there are few few we can depend on freelancers or, or, or media outlets who are very trusted and 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 we know that and we uh, we like triple check everything so we can we can be uh, true about what we're saying so 
we are trying. It's hard, mm. but we're trying to do that. And maybe I we we can flip the question. Is perhaps when I mean, and we see this across the world. I mean, Libya is obviously yeah. a very hyper version of that. But we do see in Libya that you know the private sector is problematic. You know, you look to America and, and Fox News and um and and and, and the like, and, and it all, is the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Even the I, Arabic channel with international channels, it is the Fox News, CNN, Arabia, Al Jazeera, Sky News. Every and, yeah. channel has their perspective. And so does that mean that the burden is then on the audience? Is that is that make that the, the audience have to really research who they listen to? But if you do that, then don't you just select people who amplify your own perspective? So I self-select, right? I, if I want my news, yeah. I go to Channel 4 and I go to The Guardian. Um, and yeah. I know that's only going to reaffirm my own view of the world. It's not going to challenge my view of the world. And I think that's kind of, you know, there's a whole other conversation about silos. But in a Libyan context silos become questions of life and death right because if you're mm. if you're in the middle of a war and your your media is so fragmented then that actually that that's that's not just reporting that's inciting and flaming i'm i'm conscious of time there's so many good questions so asma as, as i'm reading these questions and we we keep sort of saying acknowledging the failings um or the we or the kind of challenges in the sense of being able to access information of the funding question that Alda has so um, clearly articulated. And we were saying, okay, maybe there's more of a burden on on civil society to fill the gap of information sometimes um, and to reach out to the media or to, in fact, put out their own versions of events or to help illuminate certain things. And this picks up on one of the questions we had in, in, from an anonymous person in the chat. Um, so I, do you think that that is the role of the of civil societies to step in when the media is, uh, is prevented from doing its work or is uh, compromised uh, by its funders from doing its work? Well, I think I do believe in citizen journalism. And I do think in Libya, we do have a group of good bloggers who blog. I'm not sure how, how many of them blog in Arabic or how, how many are comfortable to blog in Arabic because some of them might cover, you know, sensitive issues. Others blog from a personal perspective and they put their lives out there. I don't think civil society organizations should take the role of media. Um, but I do think that if there is no funding and if the security situation is so problematic, then I think citizens should take it upon themselves to tell their stories um, and document, not necessarily as news, but just to document um, how things are, how they're responding to it. And I think uh, there's in peace, in peace journalism also, there is this responsibility to also tell a story that does not inflame. And my, my concern here, if I'm going to tell, encourage people to be more citizen journalists mm -hmm. and report or talk about the issues that they, they bring, it's they, they would, naturally bring their own grievances and bring their own bias and paint, paint a certain actor as, as this evil or that actor as this as that evil. And that happened in, in the war in Tripoli when people would go out with their phones. Everyone has a phone now, take videos, take pictures of whatever's happening and, and they would accuse, you know, and that was difficult to document human rights violation actually because people would accuse a certain actor for bombing and then the other one would come out and say, no, mm -hmm. we didn't do that. That person did that. So, uh, yeah, and that makes me, well, makes me on the fence about taking the role of media because because it shouldn't. Uh, but I also understand when it's when we are so polarized and when we have been thrown apart even further by media in Libya, by local media, then that people are have lost all trust and confidence in 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 something that is decent and if not decent at least something that would tell a story from different perspective without feeding into an, a certain narrative. But I, I think um, an interesting conversation that comes as I'm listening to you is sorry a question that's come up here as we were talking is from Virginie Jean, which is you know how um, what could be done to trigger or inspire a stronger public demand for independence um, of journalism and reliable information in Libya? Is there something that can be done maybe from civil society as campaigns to kind of garner that feeling? And maybe I will, I'll let you think about that uh, as my fellow civil society activist, whereas, and I'll put to the journalist this question, and maybe specifically to Patrick, um, what story can we bring you to make it interesting? In a sense, you know what? What is it that would get Libya the you know the coverage that we've been discussing that we that we want? Because we we're we're aware that to kind of you know get interest, it has to be something that's juicy. So what would what would be the criterion? 
there's two or three things. One of which is that, you know, journalism is incredibly dangerous. So I think, you know, me advocating, you know, <laughs> uh, from the safety of London, East London, sort of the, the people in Libya should conduct sort of civil society journalism is, is, is kind of probably wrong. But I mean, I was really struck, say, if we took the example of Belarus, where there's been people on Twitter and they speak obviously perfect English and they get these fantastic footage of the, the fighting, the, the protests that have gone on between the government and the, um, the people. I mean, it's not an exact, an exact parallel because it's, it's a different kind of civil war in Belarus than it is, say, in, in Libya. And as to, as to what I would love as a story to come out of, of Libya, as a story about the desire for people to have peace, and for the East and the West to the conflicts that there are between the, the two sides to be both explained and also overcome and a sense that, that these these conflicts are as much being are or are they as much being driven by an elite group of politicians or are they actually deep inside the sort of psyche of the people on both sides of the the fence as it were and so is this a conflict that is sort of artificially being prolonged by people who've got a sometimes corrupt interest in having it continue or is it something that is actually inherent in society that seems to me the the kind of key story that has to come out of Libya now is 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 this peace process something that could actually take root and actually become an exciting thing to report okay I'm looking at the time and so I'm going to come to you for just one minute concluding remark I wish we had a lot more time now I know why we don't put a time limit on the normal Libya matters episodes we just keep going until we get tired of talking and then we add we see what we've got at the end of it. Um, but if I can come back to all of you and perhaps, um, Ahmed, you can pick up on the question from Peter in your concluding remark. I know that you wanted to respond to that. As we do that, um, and I'll give you a chance to think about that. One of the other sort of things we've been working on and is very much uh, a, a living project, but we are launching today, um, is what we're calling a, the reportinglibya.org website, which is meant to be a resource for journalists who want to come up to speed on the Libyan conflict, who want to understand some of the issues that civil society think are important to cover. Um, it has, uh, it's a sort of a one-stop shop for who and, and what the situation is in the country. We would like to crowdsource information for that. So it's very much a living website that we will continue to update. And so we invite everyone on this in the audience who has any um, information that they want to add on to that, or they want to sort of fact check what we've done. That would be great. But it's what we want to do with that is to give journalists all the background they need so they can write that first two paragraphs really quickly and then focus on the juicy bits, which inquires them to kind of engage and be more investigative and come to us. There's also within the website a, a place where you can, um, we have a, a very healthy database of incredible sources in country that we say to journalists, if you want to follow up on a story, then contact us and we're, we're happy to be the matchmaker in that context of putting you in touch with people on the ground who will tell a genuine story. Because the other thing that gets a bit boring is seeing the same six or seven names in articles yeah. on Libya. And I include myself in those names as well. Like I'm not sort of seeking to say that I'm a credible source you should come to instead of those. But it is a bit, uh, it becomes its own narrative when you go back to the same sources always. So this is to widen the source pool to bring you genuine on the ground sources. So please visit it and let us know what you think. It's it's a living, breathing project to also be kind to us as you review it because it's still definitely much in development, but it's called, it's reportinglibya.org. So um, I'll come to you to... Um, to give your concluding remarks. And I, again, thank you all so much, everyone, um, our audience and our participants for giving up time in this. Um, yeah, first of all, thank you so much for this amazing uh, panel, though it was a little bit short because of the Libyan conflict is really a, a great one. So we can't like cover it or sum it up in, in an hour. And um, we hope we try to answer a couple of the questions that were out there. I was just trying to, I wanted to, to end this with, about the media and the journalism, the Libyan journalism, to be specific. As we said, it's it's controlled by many, many factors right now. And the polarization is not making it any easier for, for us, for everyone right now in this second. But I, I think if we get to the stability needed in Libya, um, we can tell stories better. International media can tell the stories uh, in a more in a better way and and also when we get to the stability we can we can 
we need a body that that oversee the the work or the regulation of the media outlets in in Libya. That's gonna help a lot on on the fact checking on the real news in Libya, on the polarization issues, on the funding issues, on on a lot of issues right now. So this is what we trying to get, and we in, in, inshallah, hopefully in Libya we see some kind of stabilization in the future. Um, I just want to say two things. One was, A, it's a really, really exciting conversation and I really uh, love meeting my fellow panellists and I hope to speak to you more. And the the point I would make is that it's actually kind of almost sounds like a British Foreign Office point, but there is this campaign which the the Canadians and the British have been running about global media freedom in which they are trying to fund mm. more independent media and make it an absolutely central part of the campaign about how to defeat authoritarianism. You know, if they're not plugged into what's going on in Libya, they should be. But uh, all the problems we've talked about around media bias and uh, lack of objectivity in Libya, I'm afraid, are reproduced right across the Middle East. And then it's really got to be addressed. Ahmed? So I wanted to mention the question from Peter. Uh, I really like it because I think it's about how to cut through the only two stories in the British press at the moment, Brexit and covid and I think two things we're lacking generally across the board, not just in the media, are curiosity and compassion. And I think those are what we require, basically, to get stories to cut through, but also to solve the problem more genuinely. We need the curiosity to be able to actually engage with countries beyond just conflict and bullets. Um, and we also need the compassion to care about stories like how people are surviving an economic crisis or how COVID is going in countries through such developed healthcare systems. I think people do want to hear these stories and want to know how people very different and yet very similar to themselves around the world are coping. Asma? Um, I'll be very brief because I think others have said pretty much what could be um, said. But what I would also say is that uh, we're often told that the Libya conflict is very complicated. There's so many actors. It's almost like an excuse not to understand better also, but not to cover it better. And to that, I I would answer, well, start simply, listen to civilians, uh, humanize them, put down not only uh, what went wrong, but also what goes right. Um, Libyans have been doing amazing work you know, either to cope or to respond or to fix things. And that's hardly out there. Um, and it should be out there. If we also want to resolve the Libyan conflict, then other Libyans also need to know that there isn't just war and despair. There's also hope. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this special episode of Libya Matters, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. This will help us get discovered and keep growing. To receive all the latest updates about new episodes and future Libya Matters live events, follow us on Facebook at Libya Matters, on Twitter at Libya Matters Pod, and on Instagram at Libya Matters Podcast. This Libya Matters live event was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi. Special thanks to our guests, Ahmed Iqtanish, Raghda Ibrahim, Asma Khalifa, and Patrick Wintour. Libya Matters is produced by Damiri Media. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS.